0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter. Of Pretty good Bible studies today. I'm going to take up 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We can entitle this section "After Church Discipline, Forgive the Sinner." Paul is going to talk about the lack of church discipline that was done in 1 Corinthians 5 when a man was caught sleeping with his stepmother. The church apparently disciplined the man for doing that, and then Paul is going to exhort the church in this section to forgive the man and and to restore him to fellowship. Our context is this, at the last half, the last part of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul had been explaining to the Corinthians why he had not visited them, he had not gone straight to see them like he had planned. Now, Paul's visits to Corinth are a little bit complicated. I'm going to take a sort of a standard view that most people take but just as we go through this, remember that some, all of this can be controverted for somebody looking for a Ph.D. in New Testament studies or something. So I'm just going to give you probably what happened. So we start here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. Now the in fact is referring to a verse in the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians 1, 1. 23, Paul says this, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Coming again after his painful visit is what Paul is talking about there. And Paul here in verse 1 takes that up again. He says, I'm not going to come to you on another painful visit. Well, now the question is, is when did this painful visit happen? This is not known to us with certainty. Here's some options. He could have made a painful visit to Corinth, when Paul founded the church in Acts eighteen, now that can't—I don't believe that. The NIV Study Bible mentions it but denies that option. That visit wasn't so painful. You read in Acts eighteen that you know it might have been painful for Paul because he was persecuted by the the Jews there, but the church itself was was not doing anything bad. The painful visit could have happened between the writing of First and Second Corinthians, and this is the position I took in the previous audio. And the NIV Study Bible says this is probably true, and I think it is. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He then says, ooh, that was a pretty severe letter. I better go follow up that letter with a personal visit. He goes, he goes straight over the Aegean to Corinth and talks to the Corinthians. They don't receive what he says, and so he comes back to Ephesus, and then he writes them the so-called severe letter, in which he really blasts them again. And Paul says, I'm not going to do that again. I've written you a letter, 1 Corinthians. I've gone to see you. And now I've written you a severe letter. I'm, I've, I've done all I can do, and I'm not going to go to see you again unless you fly right. Paul, he'd made up his mind. That was it, buddy. And that just shows, you know, if people are going to go on sinning, they're going to go on sinning, and there's nothing you can do about it, you've got to let them go. I've had that unfortunate circumstance. happen happened several times. It just makes you sick. You think, uh, you know, you were a dedicated Christian, and now you're shacking up with your boyfriend. I've had that one happen. Here's some options as to who Paul was trying to spare. By avoiding another painful visit, it could be be he was actually trying to spare himself the trouble. Or he could be sparing the Corinthians because he was going to let them hold it, have a come-to-Jesus meeting with them. Or it could be both. He was going to spare himself and the Corinthians the pain of another painful visit. Now, that painful visit would would have been his, excuse me, another painful visit. Not the first painful visit, but if he had come on another painful visit, that would have been his third visit to Corinth. His first visit was when he started the church in Acts 18. The second visit was the painful visit after probably after 1 Corinthians was written, and the third painful visit would be the excuse me, the third visit would be another painful visit which Paul is going to avoid. The actual third visit occurred after the Corinthians had repented, Paul had received news of that by Titus as he was in Macedonia somewhere. Paul writes Second Corinthians to the church at Corinth, and then he follows the letter down to Corinth, and that was his third visit when he met with them as he prepared to go back to Jerusalem to take the poor collection, the poor relief collection, back to Jerusalem. So that would be the third visit. So Paul visited Corinth three times. The first visit was 18 months when he started the church. The last visit on the way back to Jerusalem was three months. So he spent a good bit of time with the Corinthians. The, that, Paul and Corinth, they had they had quite a relationship with each other. Now, one little point before we leave, another painful visit. You could interpret it this way. I would not come to you on another visit which might be painful. In other words, the second visit was okay, and then the third visit would be painful. I don't think that's what it means, but I do point that out. That's possible, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. We now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says this, For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? In other words, there's nobody in Corinth besides the Corinthian church that's going to make, them happy, make Paul happy. And of course, he's talking about getting cheered up by the ones he calls pain. That's the Corinthians who he's blessed out. They're going to cheer him up. How? By repenting from what they were doing. It's evident that Paul still cared about the Corinthians. And he cared about what they thought about him. Now, when Paul says, if I cause you pain, then one, then who will cheer me up other than the one being hurt by me? That could be just a generic one. A general one of the Corinthians who might be hurt by all the things I've said in my tearful, severe letter, in my letter to First Corinthians, and my painful visit. It could be that. Or Paul might be more particular, referring to the one man who was sleeping with his stepmother. We need to go back and, and recall that incident. 1 Corinthians 5, one. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping. A man is living with his father's wife. So Paul is probably saying that man is the one who needs to cheer me up by repenting. Which he did. We go now to verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 I wrote this very thing. So that when I came I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. Now Paul is referring to a previous writing here. I wrote this very thing. I'm going to assume now that Paul is still referring to the previous letter of first Corinthians, which he had written, and if he if that's the case, and the very thing he was writing about writing about was the man sleeping with his his stepmother who was not being excommunicated by the Corinthian church, and Paul's upset about that, and he spends chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians complaining about the fact that they were not exercising church discipline on the guy. They need to turn him over to Satan so that God will save his spirit even if his flesh is destroyed and so forth. So he'd already written about this. And the reason he had written about it was so that he wouldn't have pain from those who might give him joy. In other words, from the Corinthians who should give him joy, but they would give him pain. How? If they had not excommunicated the man living with his stepmother. But Paul ends up with a positive note in verse 3. He says, I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. In other words, I'll be happy because the man has repented, and you'll be happy too because the man has repented, and there won't be any bad blood between us. Now, I assume that the writing that Paul has written about here in verse 3 is the letter of 1 Corinthians. This was the consensus of the early church from the earliest times. Gill and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say it was 1 Corinthians. However, it could have been that intermediate letter between 1 and Corinthians, assuming it's intermediate, the so-called severe letter. In recent times, that has been widely accepted. So I don't know what it was, but Paul had written to them. It doesn't really matter. The the point is, is Paul had written to them about the problem and it needed to be fixed now as to what was in that severe letter the letter's been lost of course some people actually say the severe letter contains the first chapters or i should say second corinthians the last four chapters contains that lost letter either in whole or in part and that later some editor edited paul's letter of first corinthians and put the severe letter in it and so you got them stitched together the argument is usual in these types of arguments is the last four chapters are not in harmony with the previous one's difference in style. Those arguments are always kind of iffy. It is argued that the last four chapters of Second Corinthians are written such that they fit the description of a letter written in great distress and anguish, as Paul mentions in verse four. I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart. That's what the last four chapters sound like. Well, I don't I never get into these textual arguments too much. The point is, is that Paul had written them about this man and he is confident that they will make him joyous by having him repent and later on we'll see and also by restoring him after he does repent. So we now turn to verse 4 in Second Corinthians 2. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart. And by the way that might sound like the last four chapters of Second Corinthians. It also sounds like First Corinthians. He was pretty troubled when he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, too, so I really believe the writing he's referring to previously is the letter of 1 Corinthians. I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not that you should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. Now, this is always the problem is when you're chastising people, they're going to say, you don't love me. It's like homosexuals today. You know, I think, brother, that you do homosexuality, it'll destroy you physically and spiritually. You hate me. Don't talk to me. You're a bigot. And that that people buck up and their hair rises on the back of the neck and says, you're judging me. Well, it's it's a tough thing to point out people's sins. It's a real tough thing. And Paul is trying to make it clear to the Corinthians, he, I love the reason I chastise you is because I love you. The reason a father chastises his son is because he loves his son. The reason God chastises his children is because he loves us to keep us from doing sins that will destroy us, that will either harm us or even, if carried to an extreme, will destroy us. Now, why did Paul have an extremely troubled and anguished heart about the Corinthians? Because the Corinthians were committing just about every kind of sin a church could do. In the book of First Corinthians, we see, for example, that Corinthians had divided themselves up into factions. They were abusing the Lord's Supper, getting drunk at it, eating, stuffing themselves gluttonously while poor people came to the supper and didn't have anything to eat. They allowed this incest to go on that we've been talking about. The man sleeping with his father-in-law, and they didn't do anything about it. A man sleeping with his stepmother, excuse me, and didn't do anything about it. They were abusing spiritual gifts by selfishly trying to exercise their gifts while other people were not allowed to exercise their gifts, and the less prominent members of the body were eclipsed. They were suing each other before pagans. They were given respect to those who denied the resurrection. Some of them may have actually denied the resurrection of the body. They were causing the weak to stumble in the question of idle meat. They were drinking milk of the word rather than eating the meat of the word. I mean, that's a, that's a bunch of criticism. And he's saying, look, guys, the reason I'm doing it is because I love you, not because I hate you. He said, Paul says, I have abundant love for you, abundant, you know, Indifference is a sign of hate. If Paul had looked at all this stuff they were doing and said to the Corinthians, you know, you people are a bunch of screw-ups. I'm out of here. I'm not going to have a thing to do with you. Now, that would not be showing love, but the fact that he did try to correct them shows that he cared for them and that he loved them. Now, Adam Clark points out that Paul's enemies were probably saying, Paul is a hard person. He hates you. And Paul is trying to show that he was not a hard person. He was saying hard words, but not for with bad motives. He didn't enjoy criticizing them criticizing them, in other words. He did it because he loved them. His purpose was not to cause them pain. He loved the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul says this, "...for you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ." He's referring to his his opponents there in Corinth, the false apostles and the other false teachers, or maybe not false teachers, maybe they were just anti-Paul teachers. "...for you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you can't have many fathers." For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. Paul's referring to the fact that he started the church. So he was their spiritual father. And I'll tell you, in my humble opinion, you you always have sort of a special feeling for the people you lead to the Lord. You worry about their spiritual journey a lot more. I'm still keeping up with a lot of people I led to the Lord in China. And there was one that I led to the Lord just totally backslid The one that ended up living with her boyfriend. And it still pains me when I think about it. She just... Committing sin that's going to destroy her life, and it and it pains me, but hey, there's a lot of other ones that are going on with the Lord of course they go through the problems of life life this is not an easy life. I just had one yesterday call me up she's crying because i all the stuff that's happened in her life, of course it has to do with men you know, men, you know or actually her <laughs> i don't say what it had to do with, but she has a lot of problems, but she's still following jesus that's the important thing and that's going to happen with your spiritual children, and these Corinthians were Paul's spiritual children, and they were screwing up, but he still loved them because they were his spiritual children. I mean, when you're the father of of a church, you're going to care about that church more. I'm sure he cared about the church of, in Corinth more than he cared about the church in Rome because he didn't start the church in Rome. He wasn't their, their spiritual father. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused, caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, all of you, and of course that anyone is causing pain, would be the man living with his stepmother. I say that, although Paul doesn't explicitly say that's who he's referring to. I believe that's who he's referring to. The NIV Study Bible says it's a particular person upon whom the Corinthians have exercised church discipline. Well, that seems pretty logical to me. it's probably the man living with his mother and his stepmother. Some people speculate, as the NIV study Bible says, that it's not that incident, but it was something that happened during Paul's short, intermediate, painful visit that we've talked about, the one that happened after, probably after 1 Corinthians, which occasioned the severe letter. There was something that happened there that caused pain to him. Uh, but the NIV studied Bible and Adam Clark say no. It's the incestuous man in 1 Corinthians 5 and that's who I believe it was and it's just easier to assume that that's what it was. So that was the man that caused pain. Not only to Paul but to all the Corinthians. Which shows that they still had some moral compunction about themselves. 2 Corinthians two six, The punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for that person. Now that would be excommunication turning him over to Satan as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. Now notice that it was the Well, let me ask you this question. Who did the punishment? Who beated out the punishment? Did Paul do it? No. The punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for that person. So it was the Corinthian church that kicked the man out, not Paul. Now, this is something that's so misunderstood, it's almost become like a myth. So I'm going to quote the verse that people love to quote here. In 1 Corinthians 5, 3, when they say, see, the apostle has authority to kick people out of a church. No, he does not. 1 Corinthians 5.3, For though I am absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, I'm a virtual church member. If I were there, I could participate in the consensual duty, the consensual decision to excommunicate this guy. But I'm not there, but I'm with you in spirit, which means I'm with you. I agree with you when you kick him out. He decided to throw the sinner out, but he didn't actually throw the sinner out. Who did that? If we read the next ver- two verses, we'll see. It wasn't Paul that threw out the sinner. Ma- the 1 Corinthians 5, 4-5. When you, Y O U Corinthians is who he's talking about here. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, i.e. as a church body to do church discipline, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus... Turn that one over to Satan. Who turns him over to Satan? You the church does, for the destruction of his flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This comports with Paul's general idea of his authority over the church, Second Corinthians one twenty four. Not that we have control of your faith. The ESV has not that we lord it over your faith. I like the Holman Christian Study Bible translation better. Not that we have control of your faith, but we are workers with you, not over you, but with you. Again. Paul was the father of that church. He could have pulled rank on him, and says, I'm your boss because I started you. But he didn't act that way. He was very gentle as he was trying to exercise this severe chastisement and admonition and instruction to the Corinthians. The apostle just confirms what the church does authoritatively. For example, in verse 10, which we'll read in four verses, 2 Corinthians 2.10, If you forgive anyone, I do too. If you forgive, in other words, you Corinthians forgive this guy, bring him back into fellowship, I do too. I'll follow along and I'll agree with you. For what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it is for you in the presence of Christ. All right, so the point is, you do the church does the forgiveness and then Paul confirms it. Likewise, the church does the excommunication and Paul says, I agree with you. The apostle is confirming what the church is supposed to do. John Gill and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this, "...the authority to exercise church discipline is not in the elders." All right, now we have a problem. It says the punishment inflicted by the majority, that's not the elders. That's the majority of the whole church. So it's not in the elders. The authority is in the whole church, as John Gill says. Here's a quotation from him, "...not by the pastor only or by the elders or more eminent persons in the church." but by the multitude, by the whole congregation. Now, this, of course, is totally violated. Most of the time, churches today don't do church discipline, and when they do, they make a perfect hash out of it by getting behind closed doors and having a little mini trial that nobody knows what's going on, and meanwhile, the rumors are running around all over the church. The whole church needs to know about it. Well, we can't. Our church is too big. Well, maybe you better have a smaller church so you can do church discipline. Now, one other point here, the punishment was inflicted by the majority. That's not consensus. Majority is 50% plus one or more, and consensus is 100%. And it's too complicated to go into here, but almost uh, every every other church dis- this decision that you can see is always done by consensus in the New Testament, choosing the servers of tables in Acts 7. The third step in church discipline is described in Matthew 18, Jesus says, "Tell it to the whole church, not to the elders, but to the whole church." The Jerusalem uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts fifteen, the choosing of Matthias to replace Judas in Acts chapter two, I think it was. All those decisions were consensual. Consensual. They didn't take a vote, fifty percent plus one. Well, how do you reconcile that? I think we do it this way, the punishment inflicted by the majority, he means a supermajority. Because after all, a consensus is also a majority. So there's no conflict here. So in other words, I'm assuming that the Corinthian church, they 100% decided this man is sinning, we need to kick him out. When you have requirements to have consensus, that means you make decisions carefully and deliberately and once the decision is made, everybody's bought into it and you don't have a disgruntled minority. And one more point is, when I say consensus, I'm assuming that that's a virtual consensus, 99.99%, because there's always some hardhead, not always, but there can be a hardhead who doesn't go along with the rest of the church, and he throws a monkey wrench into the cogs of consensus, and this paralyzes the church. Well, you can't do that. Can't do that. But essentially, the the overwhelming majority or the whole of the church makes a decision like that. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. When he says instead, it means instead of referring back to the previous verse, 6, instead of meeting out more punishment, you've already punished him. You've kicked him out. Now, instead of continuing with your punishment, like, I'm not going to talk to you when I see you in the street, and you ain't coming to church here, and that kind of stuff. Instead of that, you should instead forgive him and comfort him. After all, he's been restored. He's quit living with his stepmother. So forgive him. Forget it. It's over. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief because the man probably had a repentant conscience. He was stricken in his conscience. He realized that he would sinned. that, oh, I'm so sorry what I've done. And he would be so grief-stricken that he would be ruined for the rest of his life. and No good for anybody, for himself or his family or anybody else. So, Paul says, we don't want, the point is not to make people feel excessive grief. The point is restoration. The whole purpose of church discipline is not discipline, it's restoration, it's repentance and restoration, not excommunication. 2 Corinthians 2 8, Paul continues, Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Tell him again and again and again. I, look, we take you back, brother. I mean, you know, when somebody sins, I don't know why. To me, this is not a hard thing to do because we all sin. And when you see somebody screw up, that doesn't bother. I mean, I don't like that, but it bothers me when they don't repent. But if they repent, it's over. It's over. It's over. Accept them back. Jesus died on the cross for them. Maybe you could forgive them. You know, is that so hard? But I'm not saying if they just continue on in their sin and refuse to admit it and 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 stop practicing. Well, that's a different matter. But boy, if somebody stops sinning and confesses their sin, well, you take them back. It's like they had never sinned. Now here in verse eight, Paul says, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. How should the Corinthians reaffirm their love to the sinning brother? Well, there's two possible ways. One is personally reaffirm Corinthians love to him. Here's a quote from John Gill, quote, receive him as a brother in the most affectionate manner and embrace him with the most endearing expressions of respect and friendship. And when I read that, I usually take, I think of the Corinthians individually reaffirming the love to him, but John Gill and Adam Clark have an interesting comment here. They say that the reaffirmation of the love should be done corporately as a church. In other words, you had a consensus decision to kick him out of the church. You also have to have a consensus decision, a consensual decision, to bring him back into the church. And that way everybody knows the sin is over with. Here's a quote from John Gill. For as the, quote, for as the ejection of a person out of a church must be done by the decree and vote of the church, or it is not authentic, so the reception of a person into it must be in like manner. That's an interesting thing, which I had not thought of till I read that comment by John Gill. We go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul continues, I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you are obedient in everything. We are assuming, I'm assuming again, the writing that he's referring to is 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians not the severe letter, although it could be. He's not He doesn't, we don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that. I wrote for this purpose to test your character, not to see if you're obedient, to see if you're obedient how? In exercising church discipline and kicking the brother out of the church until he repented. And he's testing their character. You're not doing what you want to do, I'm testing your character. I'm not doing this because I hate you, I'm trying to build your character. Reminds me when students would complain when i give them exams and i look at them and say, hey, I'm trying to build your character. They didn't like that. I thought it was pretty funny, you know, because actually that's what tests do. They build your academic character. They strengthen you mentally. And now we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. If you forgive anyone, I do too. And I see there's the church forgiving and then Paul confirming. The church forgiving and the apostle confirming. That's the way it works. If you forgive anyone, I do too for what I have forgiven. If I have forgiven anything, it is for you in the presence of Christ. In other words if paul is forgiving the corinthians for not having church discipline he's he has excuse me let me put it this way he has forgiven those who have not exercised church discipline so in other words just like you forgive the man that committed sexual sin so i also have forgiven you who have not excommunicated that man and all of this is done in the presence of Christ because Jesus is looking at us when we enter into all these moral difficulties. And I'll tell you this, these tests, they do build your character. I've been involved in them. Horrible. Just like certain exams I remember in my academic career. Horrible. But by golly, they do they do build your character. We go to verse 11 and we'll finish up this audio. Paul says this, I have done this i.e., I've forgiven the penitent sinner. sinner, And also I might say he's forgiven the Corinthians too. I believe he's referring to that kind of forgiveness. I have done this, I've done this forgiveness, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now that verse is very clear. You don't forgive somebody, the devil's sitting right there getting ready to take advantage of you. Now, I mean, forgiveness is the, the heart of the gospel. Jesus forgave us for our sins. We talk about that all the time. Well, if Jesus forgives us for our sins, we need to forgive other people for their sins. And if we don't, we are going to be taken advantage of by Satan. We will give him a lever by which he can operate. We'll be giving him a hammer with which he can hammer us on the head. Paul says he's not ignorant of Satan's schemes. He knows that the devil takes advantage of people's sins. When you sin, you not only are creating death in yourself, because the wages of sin is death, you're also given the chance for the devil to do something. I'll give you a good example. I know a pastor, a young, he's a Chinese pastor of a Chinese church, not in China, but in America. And I just heard that he's trying to stop the coronavirus by smuggling in medical masks and hazmat suits, all in the name of Jesus. Got John 3.16 on the packages that are being shipped into China, doing a wonderful work. And in the process, he's working with another Chinese expatriate in another city and she was a young woman and she starts saying, Boy, I really admire what you do and one thing led to another and all of a sudden this guy says, Oh, she respects me so much, she admires me so much and so he tells four people in his church that he doesn't say he's gonna commit sexual immorality with really. her. I would never do that. I am not gonna divorce my wife. But he's gonna go over to China with the woman with which whom he who is a, he he is enamored with and this and she's a Christian too and this Christian is Heaping praise and admiration on the young man, and unfortunately his wife is not. She needs to learn a lesson there. Keep, make, keep a man happy, good food, good sex, and respect. One sentence, bam, there won't be any marriage troubles. Well, she's apparently not get, doing the, the respect part. I don't know about the other two. And so the man feels like he needs to have some admiration given to him. Well, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist and pastoral counseling to know this is the stupidest thing he ever heard of. And he has been told by the four people in his church that know what he's thinking about, no. And his wife found out, and his wife got all upset. So he agreed not to go, but nice pouting, because he can't go over there with his platonic friend palling around. So is he going to be taken advantage of by Satan? If, if he's not careful, he will be. I mean, if his wife said it was all right and if it was purely platonic and they hadn't said anything romantically to each other, that's one thing. But, I mean, you know, you go over there and you say, well, you know, I, I really lo- I, 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 like you as a woman, but I'm not going to do anything. Well, I mean, that's just, you're going to get taken advantage of by Satan. Well, enough of that pastoral application here. We are finished with 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, Paul talks about triumph in Christ positive message in the midst of all the unpleasantness i hope you stay tuned for that audio and i hope you enjoyed this one